This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Aviva Zornberg. She is a celebrated literary teacher of Torah. Her books include The Murmuring Deep, Reflections on the Biblical Unconscious, and The Beginning of Desire, Reflections on Genesis. I spoke with her in her home in Jerusalem on March 16, 2011. This interview is included in our show, The Genesis of Desire. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. And most of those came to Israel. I'm surprised there were 400,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, by the mid-80s, many of them have come to Israel. Many of them have really just the vestiges. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <coughs> That's part of the, the reason for the trip, too, was to see the communities, um, very elderly, very lonely people. This is biography. Yeah, I spent um, spent most of the 80s in <coughs> divided Berlin, but also as <coughs> covering other parts of Eastern Europe. Mm. Um, so you were you were not always in the uh, mm. in the faith sector. No, in fact, I wasn't. You were a, a journalist. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it's just <coughs> amazing. So Trent, you hear, you hear that uh, buzz? Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's one set of lights. I wonder if we can just do a little. I know it's What's far. That? I don't know. That's the thing. Are we all? Are we set up? We're Should close. We? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just noticing now that we've unplugged the refrigerator. We're, we're, there's that low. Do you want to have um, any anything in front of any texts or anything? <coughs> I have a paper, but I don't know. Okay. Well, I'm guessing okay. it's one of these. You can break, feel free to put it down here. I'm trying to find the, the lights that are now we're coming. coming. Yeah. Oh, there's something coming. Maybe it's in here. Oh. Oh, that's a problem. Not necessarily. I think it oh, might be outside. That, no, no? That was it. That yeah. did it. Yeah. I that's it that that's one, really tough. It could be that one. Tough one. Maybe I'm just going to see what. It's the combination of all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Trent, if we didn't need uh, that one over there, yeah, you can. Um, that down. We need these, though. Right. No, that one is. It's probably, not. Yeah, it's, it's these. Why don't you sit down and we can? Uh, okay. If you would sit down. Then. Okay. Remind me what your Scottish connection was. I grew up in Scotland. You did. My father was a rabbi. Mm-hmm. In Glasgow. So, did your mother no, grow up no. in Romania? Uh, she grew up in, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, with all the hair-raising stories. Yeah. yeah. I grew up on partly told mm-hmm. <laughs> hair-raising stories. And how yeah. did the, your parents meet? Where did they meet? In Vienna. Okay. <laughs> That's one of those European <laughs> yeah, stories. Mother, yes, yeah, it's a very European. And the, mm-hmm. It seems that the Galicia... Central European, mid-century. The Galicia-Vienna yeah. connection is very strong with many people. I think right. a lot of people have sure. that. Okay. That combination, right? It's you know something Germanic, but actually mm-hmm. very not Germanic. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, you know, I picked that up in those years in Berlin. That, that, Central European. You did. That, yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, not, yes. I obviously didn't live through it, but um, it's you, still in the air. I'd say. Would you mind if I moved your clock? Go ahead. Okay. Move whatever you like. <laughs> Within reason. <laughs> it's a, it's lovely and a nice mm-hmm. ticking ticker. 
So I don't want us to start talking about anything serious until no. you're taping. So. So Chris, I think the only one I just uh, need one back. I like that button. low light. That makes me happy. Okay. Yeah, low light um, is good. for women. So <laughs> After a certain age, it's all about light. Even before that age. <laughs> Just leave it off then. Lighting makes all the difference. <laughs> what about two children who live here in Israel now? Three. Three, and they all live here? They all live here. Mm -hmm. they yes, me and Tim. Mm -hmm. yeah. When did you come to Israel? 69. Mm. I'm going to put this down here. Can you see that? Yeah, put it, let's put it. Up here, is that all right? Is, is it, it going to be in the shot? shot? Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I just. Yeah. This is very different from the studio recording. Does that feel comfortable? How those positions in your shot? It's all good. So I don't know if do you remember the interview we did a few years ago? That's what I meant. Yes, yes. I and I, I mean, I remember what was so remarkable is. Uh, I I had never done that, uh, so I went to divinity school. I went to Yale Divinity School. Mm. So I did at the beginning of your career. Uh, no, in the nineties. So after oh. I was in Germany, and then I became interested in religion. I became religious again. I became interested in religion mm. in the world. I didn't want to be ordained. I just wanted to study theology, and so uh, that whole study of uh, you know learning to do exegesis. I mean, learning to unlock the text was mm -hmm. just such a revelation and it shouldn't be I feel it shouldn't be such a revelation mm -hmm. I feel mm -hmm. I wish that's your be, mission somewhere yeah too. it exactly in yeah. a way it is and, mm -hmm. and and I think in Judaism there are these traditions of midrash that mm -hmm. people get to participate in or they're aware yes. of in Christianity yes. it's just yes. people have no idea yeah. that you can read the text with your mind and with and your imagination humor, yes. <laughs> yes. yes so it was so fun for me um, to do that with you and uh, just, I remember just in the end, I put my notes to one side and opened up the Bible, and we were just walking through Exodus. So, are we, are we taping? I don't know. I'm rolling. Okay. We're rolling. What, are you, what, what do you think? Um, what, did you think about a text or a story or a couple of stories you'd um, like to? There are a number of possibilities. I mean, one possibility that I'm very fond of is the, act, the Eden story. Okay. Adam and Eve mm -hmm. and God mm -hmm. and desire mm -hmm. and, and so on. Um, Another is the flood. I mean, mm -hmm. I, actually, almost everything I, mm -hmm. I I've written about um, is yeah important to me. So the um, did we we didn't talk about Genesis before, did we? No. The, the you know what I have notes in my purse. I forgot. Uh, is, yeah, there it is. Right. While in fact, is there a pen? Yeah, while we're stopped, phones. Very yeah, my phones are off. Can I borrow that pen, Nancy? Or do you need it? Okay. In case I need to write some notes. What about phones, um, the house phones? We'll take the risk of the house phone. Okay. <laughs> the cell phones can, if, even if people are getting texts, can interact with the microphones. If the phone rings, we'll just pause. Well, let me, see, the thing about, the Genesis story comes up a lot in different contexts. Do you know Ellen Davis? Uh, at, she's at Duke now. Yes, she's a Christian scholar with the yes, Hebrew Bible. Yes, yes, And uh, she was my teacher at oh, Yale of oh, Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. Now she's at Duke. And uh, we ended up talking a lot about Genesis uh, and the land, the imagery of the land. Mm. We were talk She's gotten very interested in uh, ecology mm. and also helping Christians uh, read the te what the text is saying about the natural world mm. and about being mm. creatures among cre other creatures. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And so we, we talked a lot about Genesis. Um, do you think we should maybe do Genesis and Genesis and did there's some Noah? 
What do you think? And the flood, I feel, is one of these stories that's like a cartoon story for mm-hmm. people, right? Mm-hmm. They think they know it. Yes. So um, it's a myth in the negative yes. sense. <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. In a negative sense, it's very flat. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I mean, I, I loved reading what you're writing about the flood and all the layers. Can we do two stories in an hour, or should we just do the flood? What do you think? I don't know. Depends how it goes. <laughs> yeah. um, why don't we do the flood and see where that takes us? Just okay. because that's different, that, that and then see, because yes. I think Genesis is so rich, and you can spend infinite number of things. Exactly. You can talk about. Yes. Let's see, see where it goes. Okay. So I love the idea of taking uh, a story again that is people learn. Um, in a religious context, but it's also very much uh, a cultural story, right? It's an image. And, you know, I, I know when you, um, there's so much you wrote about, um, what is it? This is what, here's, let me just read this, and then let's start back at the beginning. The return to wateriness is a return to speechlessness. The drama of the generations leading up to the flood and following it becomes a drama about language, about the paradoxes inherent in the human capacity to create symbol systems. It is a drama about civilization and its discontents. Hmm. So clearly you're writing about a different story than most of us have learned, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whether we've learned it in Sunday school or in school. Mm -hmm. So where would you start with that story? Do you want the text or do you know it? Do you? Let Uh, me have it in front of me. You know it. Okay. So where is it anyway? The floods. I should have have marked it. Uh, Chapter 6. Chapter 6. All right. All right. So, so, so what's happening there? Ah, what's happening there? I mean, everything is happening. I think whatever, whatever you can read in the text is happening. Uh, What I'm interested in is the issue of, of language and silence and silence as a kind of autistic defensive silence and the basis for this apparently very modern theme um, actually is in the Zohar in the in the source of Kabbalah mm-hmm. um, which in is which the mystical mystical tradition, mystical traditions mm-hmm. which talk about the beginnings of humankind um, as an experience of what's called the exile of the word exile of the word the exile galuta dibor in uh-huh. Hebrew um, as if it's not just people who go through physical tribulations, but that in some way people lose their access to language and have to refine it. And that is not, it's not simply, uh, it's not a neurological issue. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's a psychological issue. It's a spiritual issue. So that when it comes to Noah and the flood, um, Noah is, is hemmed in in his ark, which is actually not even an ark. It's a, it's a box. So we're talking about once the flood has arrived. Once the flood has arrived. arrived yes. Does this loss of connection to language, does that have anything to do with, with the fact of the flood happening, the reason the flood? Okay, let's go back to there. It's a good, mm-hmm. good idea to start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, the flood, uh, the idea, the word that's used for flood, mabul, is an idea of a surging mass of water, of, of confusion, of chaos. It's a very resonant image right now with this tsunami in Japan. Oh, it's, but just it's, as you said it's that, sickening. And, it's just but that surge and yes. that that violent power that of violent water power that no one expects. That uh-huh. because the sea, the waters have been confined and they're 
in their normal places. Mm-hmm. And you, don't, you never dream that they're going to defy that, those limits. Mm-hmm. And in the Zohar, behind the Zohar, there are traditions that connect that with the original creation of dry land, the original creation of a world out of the waters. And in order to achieve um, civilizations, and a civilization in the largest sense, you're going, in a sense you're going to have to emerge from the water mm-hmm. and from that amorphous mass of things um, and achieve a human structure, human languages, ways of talking about ways of talking about experience, ways of talking about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that what happens in the flood, and it's actually can be traced rather closely in the language of the narrative, um, what happens in the flood is that there is a return to a pre-created universe, to the universe okay. before. Without So it's, yes. Without form. Without form, uh, without form and void. Right. Which means specifically then without language. So the void, without form and void, which is that Genesis language, yes, right? Yes. That that yes. void is is a void of language. It's a void of language. And, and the Hebrew again is sorry mm-hmm. is very very graphic. It's mm-hmm. tohu vavohu, and tohu vavohu. Even the sound of it is like a kind of babble, a sense okay. of you know a babble of waters, and the need to to control that, and in some way give form to that, and that is all lost when everything is destroyed, when everything is flooded. Um, so that that would be like almost like the metaphysical implication right. of something very physical, and that void um, it is also larger than the loss of language, right? I mean, is it the loss of connection then between human beings, the loss of encounter and relationship? Well, I think by language, um, the, the tradition means dibur is not technically just simply t- the technical act of language; it's communication, mm-hmm. it's connection. Um, it's everything that saves that saves the individual and and the world from from a kind of autistic closure, you know, yeah. just being closed up in oneself. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking this is a completely different connection, but I think it works. It's in the midrashic spirit um, <laughs> conversation I had recently for the show with um, a philosopher from Princeton who we were talking about civility in the United States. This mm. issue of mm. Uh, not just how do we civil conversation and civil society which is a problem Mm -hmm. for us right now Mm -hmm. and uh, he was wanting to resurrect the word conversation Mm -hmm. in as he said a more old fashioned sense Mm -hmm. of not just words passing between people Mm -hmm. but human familiarity Mm -hmm. like shared life association Uh, you're actually describing something very similar absolutely I think that's very beautiful it it, it reminds me of uh, Milton just um, in one of his in prose essays, his polemical work, works actually defending marriage, describing marriage, and I think he uses the expression "it's a meat conversation," <laughs> meaning it's just it's, it's a right kind of conversation between two people, mm-hmm. um, and by that he doesn't just mean words; he means a, a whole life. a whole life. Uh-huh. Yes. Mm. So the flood uh, comes. The flood is represents that. Breakdown of form at that form. Uh, point. Yes. Um, again, um, the what I what I see in it is that the flood has already happened mm-hmm. before the flood happens. Mm-hmm. In other words, the metaphorical flood is already underway. That 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 boundaries and forms of communication, structures of communication, have already been destroyed mm-hmm. um, in sexual life. That's one of the emphases in in the. This kind of background of the story, 
that uh, people are having sexual relations with anything and everything. Um, and there, there's no sense of the kind of limiting of the forces and channeling of the forces mm-hmm. that belongs to a civilization. And once that is gone, then the water is just a kind of realization. It's an objective correlative of, of what has actually happened. And um, what, it, what it, in the background of this, or it's kind of at the origin of that, what, what is the nature of God? This is, a, this is also re- reflecting... God's um, reaction to this state of affairs among mm-hmm. human beings? Mm-hmm. Well, God says, I'm going to put an end. He uses a rather terrible word, kates, which means a final end to human life. And only as a kind of afterthought, he says, but I'll save you. So it sounds as if, as if God is really disillusioned about the whole project. The human project. The, the project of humanity. Right. And it actually says, it's the most extraordinary description in the, in the Bible itself, and he was saddened to his heart, kind of disappointed, disillusioned, very anthropomorphic expression. Mm-hmm. You don't, we won't expect to find that of an omnipotent God. Should we wait? Okay, okay. We may have to read Okay. Oh, good. All right. Of course, I didn't notice anything. <laughs> I was waiting for you to tell us if it was unbearable. Okay. God, God is disillusioned. Uh, but that's quite a you know theologically incorrect way of talking about God, as mm-hmm. if God didn't know ahead of time what was going to happen. You know, basic dogma that <laughs> that God knows everything. Um, but but the Bible doesn't go for it. basic dogmas. That's what makes it such a live narrative. Mm-hmm. And God is envisioned here as someone who had great hopes um, and who was disappointed of those hopes. Mm-hmm. Um, what else can we? Well, so we yeah. so then we're with Noah and then the Ark. Noah. Somehow, I we took it back to the beginning. You were talking about Noah being confined in his space. That's right which the Hebrew word for ark again is teva, which is a box. And that sort of gives you the picture that actually he's boxed in. Uh, Very interestingly, the word teva also in later Hebrew means the word. Hmm. It's the word for the word, which the Zohar will play with. The Zohar will have things to say about that. But essentially, it's a prison. You know, it's a floating prison in which the, uh, the seeds of a new civilization are preserved. Um, and it's an extremely unnatural life that's lived in that box. Right. And again, the Zohar and Midrashic sources are, go to town on it. I mean, they really have a lot to say about that. That's interesting, too, because we never, when that story is told, uh, you know, to children, for example, I think it's yes. mostly children who hear the yeah. flood story, we never reflect on the life in the ark. You get the two by two. <laughs> yes, yes. Coming on and then, com- and then coming out again. at the end. Yes, yes, yes. So how does the Zohar? How does it play the Zohar and, and and midrashic sources. Um, first of all, how did they all eat? How did the animals eat? It's a big right. Yes, I mean, all right. <laughs> maybe they brought on food for the animals, but how did they get at it? Yeah. So the Zohar imagines very beautifully that Noah spends his whole time, morning and night, and you know, day and night. Um, feeding the animals. That's, that's an expression of his desire to preserve the world. Um, and he feeds each animal according to its own time, its own feeding schedule. So he's really rather fully 
occupied feeding the world. He doesn't get a wink of sleep again in, the, in, in, the, in these midrashic sources. Mm-hmm. He has no sexual relations with his wife, and no one does. There is no sex, even the animals. Uh, on the ark, you know, don't have relations. Well, with, right, with it inmates. would get crowded if they added. Uh, and again, so so none of this is in the text. Right? None of it, so but it's hinted. Is, the hint okay. is, it's a wonderful, it's a, really a hint um, where God says to Noah, "You get onto the, come onto the, come onto the ark, uh, you and your sons and your wife and your daughters, and her daughters." In other words, there people are listed gender separate. Hmm. You and your sons, not you and your wife, mm-hmm. but you and your sons, and the women separate. And that is taken, first of all, the implication is that in a time of catastrophe, it's not proper to, to have, have a good time to, to enjoy sexual relations. Hmm. Um, but I think it goes much further than that. Um, and what you have is a necessary measure for survival, a kind of anti-flood period, it's about a year, um, it's which which really counters all the madness uh, and the, the fusion of things uh, mm-hmm. in the waters. But then, when the time comes to get off the ark, and God says, "Say, Minateva, you know, leave now." He says, "Leave you and your wife." And by leave, therefore, he means not just get off, you know, get onto the plank and walk off, mm-hmm. but he means return to a human, to a human way of living, which means you and your wife. Dibor, hmm. speaking, the human hmm. thing. Hmm. Um, and he leaves with his sons and, again, the women separate, which means that he doesn't really agree to, le- to leave, that there is something about that setup in the box that, in a strange way, suits him. Um, and what I understand from it is that Noah is fleeing He's, it's a defensive mechanism. He's fleeing from the hazards and risks of dibur, of, of, of talk, of the word, mm-hmm. uh, and of sexuality, which has proven itself to be very dangerous, to be, to be something that's led to catastrophe. And he wants to go to stay in this kind of safe little module. You know, it's like a space module, mm-hmm. in a sense, that refuses to return to Earth. Um, because it seems to him, in some way, simply safer. Um, and that way, of course... The end really lies, because if if there is no procreation, then that's the end of humanity. But what fascinates me is Noah's um, lack of love for life. Hmm. Something is lacking in him, and it's called the lack of the word. It's called okay. the exile of the word. Um, it, one way that the Zohar points it out very vividly is that when God says to, to Noah you get onto the ark with your wife and, and so on, and everyone else will die, Noah says not a word mm. He's silent. to God. Mm-hmm. He doesn't answer at all. He doesn't pray for the, for the people of the world. And that it occupies the very center of the narrative for the Zohar. And the Zohar thinks of that, that, that absence of intervention by... It's true that even though Noah, in a sense, is a heroic character, because for reasons that we don't quite grasp or that's, that are not spelled out, he's the one person who is saved. Yes. He's yes. not very three-dimensional. It's rather enigmatic. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. You don't see heroic qualities in no, him. No, you don't. And, and the expression is that he found favor in the eyes of God. And that almost sounds, especially in the Hebrew, as if 
it's a kind of irrational preference on the part of God, you know, that God... That and that's in the text all the way through, isn't yes, it? Yes, it really is. There's it, also it a bit really with is. David as well. Yes. Isn't there yes. this word? The idea Tom, of liking. A word? The idea of liking, you know. Yes. People just like each other, and God also likes people. Uh-huh. But for some reason, God sees possibilities in Noah. That, uh-huh. But it's not spelled out in terms of solid, you know, character qualities or or anything like that. But when, I, when you describe that... That way in which Noah is in a kind of prison, but he seems to have a comfort level with it, whether that's reflected or not, um, which then impedes his capacity to live fully in the world, mm-hmm. to grow up. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that is in fact an image of, of life, right, of the human condition. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all, mm-hmm. we each have our... Yes. Prisons. I mean, it would be like it's also this imagery of the difference between a victim and a survivor comes to mind, and mm-hmm. you're kind of describing that. Yes. I mean, being a victim, one mm-hmm. can get very comfortable in that. Absolutely. And, and and on top of that, I think precisely the things that he can't do in the ark that he mustn't do, like uh, sexual relations, sleeping, um, the way he spends all his time feeding. It occurred to me that these are descriptions of God. So there's a kind of, that God preserves, God feeds all living beings, and God doesn't sleep, he doesn't slumber nor sleep, and God, of course, has no partner. Um, right. So in a sense, there's a kind of omnipotence that Noah is, ex- is experiencing in this prison, which is very, again, I think very natural, mm-hmm. that once you are, you have deprived yourself of, of life, then you see that in some way as an ideal um, and as an expression of ultimate power. Because you are not compromised now mm-hmm. in any way by the messy world of, of talk, of communication, mm. and sexuality. Mm. So th- there is a real a sense of a def- to me there's a sense of a, a defense mechanism, and he refuses to let go of it. Right. And that's a, again a very common human image. Mm-hmm. I think so. How how do you? Um... How do you read a text like this, a story like this, with all of its implications and resonance? And how does it come alive for you in this place, in you know, the year two thousand eleven? Mm. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, what is I, that? It's a car alarm. Oh, oh, you know, we don't have car alarms in the states anymore. You don't? No, they because they drive people not crazy. Not really. They don't go off. Do you remember when they were new? They used to go off every. There was always a car alarm going off. They're not. They're not allowed anymore. No, I think they've changed. They've just gotten. Okay. Yeah. So, so how does this come alive for you? um, In in a modern, very modern life, in an Israeli life. I tend to think um, and imagine on an individual basis rather than in terms of collectives, um, although I could see how one could easily apply this politically. Um, but what interests me most, actually, is the life of the human being in an existential mm-hmm. sense and how, how tempting that pathology of the exile of the word is as people, you know, in a way become megalomaniac uh, about how only my view is is the right view, and therefore conversation in that larger sense um, becomes not only unnecessary, but really dangerous. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, in the the end, uh, he becomes drunk. Noah. Noah becomes drunk. 
And so there's a kind of intoxication that comes of that kind of solipsism and 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 depression actually i mean that's it's a strange uh, I, I see it very much in modern psychological and psychoanalytic cat- categories that it's not it's, a, it's an unwillingness even to admit that one's lost something mm. so and therefore one is not prepared to mourn what one has lost um so really one is caught in a in a in a state of closure um that holds no hope at all. It's an impossible. It's an impossible situation, but it's but it's a situation that's very human. I think this is also an example of um, how the Hebrew Bible preserves a picture of the messiness of human life. Mm-hmm. It's there in the holy yes. text. Yes, I was having a conversation the other day with um, with someone here in Jerusalem, and he was saying that that's become so much more and more important to him as he's moved through his life. Um, I think uh, it's, it's a bit foreign for Christians. I mean, mm. Jesus is such a perfect, okay. but not very three-dimensional figure. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's so much that we don't, that's not known that the text really doesn't address, truly doesn't address, and there's not this tradition of Midrash. Mm-hmm. But even the most heroic figures, mm-hmm. like a David or like a Noah, mm-hmm. the one man who's saved, yes. are flawed. These are not fairy tales with happy endings. Mm. And even God himself, I mean, that's that's really going very far, and a traditional reading of the Bible would hesitate before going this far. But I couldn't help feeling, especially in these early stories, that God, in a way, is modeling to people. That aspect of God, which is can be known by, by human beings, um, is modeling to people how not to be godlike. Mm. In other words, that God behaves in a way that is not entirely godlike um, and takes the risks of that, as if to model to to Noah and and the other characters um, the possibilities of error, the possibilities of what you call messiness, and how that actually is part of of the dance. It's it's part of the dynamic of a world that's that's informed by desire which is God's world. God desires, God himself desires, he desires there should be a human being in the world. He says, let us make, you know, mm-hmm. in some way diminishing his, his omnipotence. Um, and, and the Jewish tradition emphasizes that, that these are ways in which God connects with us because he connects with our, with our issues of omnipotence and of the necessity for, 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 a, different, for a different approach. Mm. I think you also talk about desire animating the reader. Yes, yes. Uh, there's a desire for the text. Yes, absolutely, yes. That we don't... I mean, reading the text half asleep is basically... is nothing. Uh, it's in not the really tradition. reading the text. You know, you don't read, you, you study. You study the text, and that implies that you don't really understand it, first off. That you, mm-hmm. you read it, and then you read it again, and then you notice things. And things don't work, and things don't make sense, and then you're you're exercised by it, and that's what I call desire, mm-hmm. because something is not something that should be there is not there, um, and that's what gets people going. That's what gets people involved, and and this very intimate connection between uh, between the human being and the text, between Jews and the and, the, mm-hmm. and this text, um, is a result of that. So, talk to me a little bit more about the notion of desire. Um, 
it's a very evocative word. Uh, but the way you're using it has many layers mm-hmm. that are not necessarily there in a cultural reference to desire. Mm-hmm. So take me inside that word. And I, mm-hmm. I think maybe by, by where you pointing at where you see, how you see it come to life in the text mm-hmm. uh, or in other, other sources. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd have to go back to the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. in that case. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> this innocent little sentence that the Lord God took Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden, in the garden, which, when you come to think about it, doesn't make sense. Where was he before the Garden of Eden? We tend to assume loosely that that's where he was created. No, he was created somewhere else. And then God took him. So Rashi, who is the, the prime commentary on the, on the biblical text. Rashi is one of the great one commentators. Of the great commentators. Midrash, Midrash, yeah, 11th century, mm-hmm. yes. And he uses Midrash a great deal. So he has this wonderful comment on the word, and God took him. And he says, the implication, what's behind it is that God, how do you take a human being? You can take an object and move it from here to there. But how do you take a human being? And he says, he seduced him with words. He seduced him with beautiful words. And it's actually the word for seduction is used. He moved him, you know, he, allure, he lured him with beautiful words to enter the garden. That is, you couldn't, he couldn't take him by main force, could he? Well, of course right. he could. <laughs> but God doesn't do that, as it were. That When it says God took, it means that he moved him to want to go. Mm. And... Why does God want him in the Garden of Eden? Because God has some kind of a desire that he wants to see played out in the Garden of Eden, that God desires something about human beings. And in the Midrashic literature, what God desires of human beings is simply that human beings should desire him. Um, and that's like a delicate matter. You know, mm-hmm. How do you affect someone else's desire? Mm. You can't force because that's obviously not going to work. Um, and therefore it becomes a question of what's called seduction in a positive sense. Mm-hmm. Seduction is something we can't live without. You know, we're seduced by a sunset, we're seduced by a smile. Uh, you know, the, so, life is full of seductions. Um, some are more healthy than others. Um, but you, you can't be without seduction in a live world, and you can't be without desire. Mm. And so God presents himself throughout the story of of the Garden of Eden, I think, as someone who has desires, Um, that he he has desires and he wants human beings to be a little less, again, a little less android-like, you know, (laughs) a little less less robotic, and to discover the world of desire, which they don't have at the beginning, at the very beginning. Um, they're, They're just perfect. They're made just just perfect. Everything fits in place. Um, you can't have desire unless something is lacking. Unless something is lacking, you can't and you can't, and you can't have desire. <sighs> Let's just leave it at that. Unless mm-hmm. unless something is is lacking, and unless well, what I was going to say actually mm-hmm. was um, unless you have parents. Now, if I, if I go with Freud, um, desire begins with. The strange, mixed-up situation, what he calls the family romance, uh, 
um, the relation, mm. you know, between daughter and father and son and mother, and the need in some way to work through that and to move out of it, through and out of it to something else. He, they don't have parents. At least Adam doesn't have a parent. You might say, if, if you wanted to be very provocative, that Eve right. has a father because she's born out of the body of, mm-hmm. of Adam. But in any case, they don't have that very normal human experience. So they are abnormal. Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. And so what I see is the attempt to create an unconscious desire in a situation in which the basic equipment, in a way, is missing, because what God really wants is the next generation. Mm. The next generation will have parents mm. and will already be born into what you call the messy, right, yeah. the, the messy world. And there's something about that that God wants, that God loves because it produces desire. Hmm. So what's interesting to me there, I remember when I first started uh, knowing how to get inside these texts, I was fascinated by the notion of delight mm. in the Garden of Eden, that mm-hmm. Eden it's, means delight. Yes. It's all over the place, actually, yes. once you start. Uh, again, I don't think a word people associate with the Bible. Mm-hmm. So, so, you're, so God has created this delightful place. The food is delicious, right? Mm-hmm. The, everything is beautiful. Yes. And as you say, perfect, perfectly yes. suited to their needs. Yes. And then there's an irony there, isn't there, that because it's all perfect and beautiful and delicious, they don't know desire, mm-hmm. which then yeah. it turns out that they can't be complete without that. Yes, and then, of course, in the, in the difficult way that things always happen, their first real meeting with desire is through the snake, mm-hmm. through the serpent, who comes with his evil seduction, with his, you know, with his disturbing seduction, and they're not equipped to know how to deal with it. Eve is not equipped at first, and so she allows herself to be seduced by the serpent, and then she seduces her husband, she seduces Adam. So it's, it's a whole, you know, suddenly, there it, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's a world that's full of, full of, full of unruly, unruly impulses. Um, and the aims, what I see as a, as a wonderful turning point, is when Adam lies mm-hmm. to defend himself, when God when asks God him, said, right. where are you? And when he's hiding in the garden. Mm-hmm. And he answers, and God asks him, Didn't you, don't you know the type? Um, and Adam answers, um, the woman that you gave me. He blames. Yes. She gave me of the fruit, mm-hmm. and I ate. And, and that's when we're really embarrassed, you know, because that's, that's, we identify somewhere now, ah, oh, this is, I recognize this, this is, this is human. Um, human in an embarrassing way. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't want to acknowledge that that is who we are. And what I suggested, um, and what seems to me very um, plausible, is that it's not exactly a lie. He, he is saying the truth. His wife did give him the fruit, and he did eat. Um, he's ignoring many things. But I think what he's doing, actually, is s- saying two things at the same time. Yeah, that on the one hand, he's in a way confessing. That, that's the truth. This is what happened. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he is trying to justify himself. He's trying to pass the buck and to, to, right. to Eve. And that, I think, is the moment of humanity. That's when we really start talking. You know, I think um, about who uh, we are and about what we're who like. we are. Yes, yes. Uh, Alex Brodsky said, "Consciousness, human consciousness, begins with one's first lie." Mm-hmm. 
Mm. You know, because that's when we begin to be aware of the complexity in ourselves and the different impulses. And that's where poetry comes from as well. You know, not <laughs> only bad things come from mm. saying two things at the same time. You know, as, as long as you have a kind of straight, unequivocal, immaculate version of things, then there can be no poetry and there can be no mm. tension, um, no desire, again. It's, the, the, the desire makes itself felt uh, when language comes alive. How do you think about um, the meaning of knowledge, right? It's the tree yes. of the knowledge of yes. good and evil. Let me just say what, something that I was struck by, and as I learned to read this, but I, I want you to open it up and take it in another direction, if you will. That I, For one thing, I think, uh, to a Western mind, that there should be something wrong with knowledge, mm. that God should forbid knowledge, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, is offensive mm-hmm. and strange. Mm. Uh, strange for the faithful and and uh, the problem with religion mm-hmm. for the for, for the unbeliever. Mm-hmm. But the knowledge that Adam and Eve gain um, is is petty. I mean, it's not evil. It's not catastrophic. It's evil. It's like they know that they're naked. Where as before, they were very happy, mm-hmm. um, uh, and they know how to they know how to lie and they know how to blame. What, what, what is that word, the knowledge? What yes. is the image in the Hebrew that... Well, you know, when sexuality begins properly um, between Adam and Eve, the word that's used is vayeda Adam, that, the, that Adam knew his wife. Right, knew, knew right. Eve. So, and is that the same word? It's the, the same tree word. Of knowledge? It's the same really? word. So I can't help thinking it's not theoretical knowledge that we're talking about here. We're talking about consciousness in its fullest sense, and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And again, it has to do with communication and language. And God wants it, actually. The knowledge. Actually, he wants the Consciousness. Knowledge. He, wants, he, wa- mm-hmm. he wants that to happen. There might have been better ways for it to happen, but it happens in this way. And perhaps in the end, uh, it's not so clear that that God wasn't opening, opening the sluice gates, mm-hmm. in a way, to, to, to all that. Because without that, God drives right, God drives Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. after that. And it seems almost as if um, a new period has to, has to begin now in which the bliss, what you call the, the total pleasure, the French have this lovely word, jouissance, hmm. which I, I, I think of for, for, for Aden, for, for Eden. Yes. Um, that total bliss... It has to be, in a way, moved out of. There is a, a kind of divorce from that kind of relationship with God, that kind of relationship between man and woman, and into something more. And even that relationship with the natural world, with the natural which is world, very with the natural these days, world. Always. Yes, yes. And there is an ideal somewhere in Jewish thinking of ultimate return mm-hmm. to the Garden of Eden, um, but clearly, it's not. A return to what it the same way it was because mm-hmm. once you've been through experience, you know you return to innocence in a very, in a very different way. And yes, yeah, so I, I think knowledge really has a lot to do again with desire. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the again one of the, the great commentators, Nachmanides, uh, translates the word as desire. The, the word knowledge. The, is the word knowledge here. The knowledge of good and evil. The tree. There's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. He understands as the tree of desire for both good and evil, um, that is, the capacity to love and to hate, he says. 
that before there was no loving and no hating because it was just, everything was in a way unequivocal. Mm-hmm. Let's change the tapes and we'll just keep going about 15 more minutes if that's all right. Is that okay? <clears throat> all right. Cough now, okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, a, like a, an Israeli concert hall. <laughs> Between movements Beethoven. This is so wonderful. Where is it? <coughs> Oh, there it is. I wanted to ask you about this. What were you looking for? Um, I'll tell you in a minute. I want mm-hmm. to ask you about it. Um, we're rolling again. Okay. So it seems to me that what you're describing kind of harkens back to this larger theme of almost a maturation process of God's relationship or God's, God's desire for what human beings might be, the mm-hmm. relationship, how God might build that relationship um, I mean I don't even know how to say it so I was thinking after we were talking about Noah a minute ago just as I was turning the pages when we moved to Genesis I saw as you said there was this moment where God's in, in this Everett Fox a translation yes, which yeah. tries to s- stick closer to the Hebrew he yes, says yeah, he, and God was sorry he had made them yes. but um, it's almost like what you're describing is a learning process on the part of both God and mm. humanity Yes. Um, I have to confess that I have a, a little reservation about that kind of language about God. I don't, I don't, it doesn't come smoothly to me. The which language? The, uh, the language of God learning. Okay. God learning. And the way in which I've, I've come to think about it, I know this is part of, this is the way people do talk now, that God learns, especially in the flood story. Mm-hmm. And he changes his mind and he realizes no more floods and, and so on. Um, the way in which I've come to terms with it um, is to think of God as a character in the story who obviously cannot be perfect. As a character in the story, he can't be omniscient and and omnipotent. And and the way the story is told, in fact, makes that clear. The the God who, according to Jewish tradition, has written the story is like the author vis-a-vis the character. Um, And the God who... who, (laughs) transcendentally um, is at the back of the God who writes the, the Bible, is yet again another stage further away from projections of various kinds. But the God in the story itself, God has written a story about himself as a character, and, and that character, yes, learns. He learns because he wants to teach human beings to learn. Mm-hmm. You know, somewhere there's a kind of modeling there, which may be very far from, you know, an official education agenda. You know, it's not necessarily an educational project. It's just something you can't help picking up as you as it, you're reading. It's more of a creative process. It's a creative process, yes. So when I was first thinking about theology, I was I was also writing fiction and reading people writing fiction and yes. You know, there are all those. We, we use so many metaphors to think about God, and the one that's most I don't know readily at hand is God as Father. But I, I've I've thought about you know God as author, mm-hmm. but so you know people who write creatively often describe how their characters 
if their care if the story comes to life, mm. they lose control, yes. even though they are the writer. Yes. And so, you know, what you're describing in a way is as a way to think about this in mm-hmm. our time and space is an author who's also then has a capacity to enter the story and be both mm-hmm. of those things, mm-hmm. but then in entering the story loses control. Mm-hmm. Is that um I think loses control as, in the same way as a human, as you say, as a human writer loses control. It's not exactly losing control. No. It's actually discovering forces that were not explicit before, that were not fully, uh, and suddenly they find these forces and these, these ways of, of creating things um, suddenly become real. And it, so in that sense, it's losing control in, in terms of a, a neat an unmessy package and losing control in the sense of having to interact yes. then with the other yes. the three dimensionality again, again the idea is a, of is language a, mm-hmm. yes that once words are used then they are inevitably human words mm. and God has to use human words however divine the words are they're clearly a restriction on his infinite power um, and it's a blessed restriction mm-hmm. in some ways because mm-hmm. it it, it makes a world possible, a mm. human world possible. What else comes to mind as you think about this? Um, something did come to mind, but it floated off. Mm. <laughs> um, you often bring literature, not religious literature, yes. just literature into, yes. your, into your midrash in a way, mm. I think. Is that fair to say it that way? Something, if it comes back to you, just mm-hmm. to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I think something very moving for me when I finally read the Genesis story closely was this idea, where is it? Uh, this image of yeah, God planted a garden in Eden slash land of pleasure, which is how mm-hmm. Everett Fox has translated it. Mm. This idea that, I, I can't find it, it's, it's repeated a couple of times, I think, of Adam and Eve living in this, this land of pleasure, meeting God in the cool of the day. There's mm. this proximity. Mm. Um, and then there's an echo of that which is kind of, which is sad or nostalgic in a way, after they are expelled from the garden. And God has done this, right? Mm-hmm. There's just this one line, it's verse 21, um, chapter, chapter 3. Now Yahweh God made Adam and his wife coats of skins mm-hmm. and clothed them. Mm-hmm. Which, as you said before, they didn't have parents, which means they couldn't be fully human. But yes. this is a very paternal gesture. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they've been punished. Yes. And then yes. they're clothed. Very tender gesture. Yes. Yes. It's, um, in fact, it's typical, again, of, in this case, I think it's a Talmudic source that says, from here we learn that we should clothe the naked. Ah. In other words, we learn from God's actual behavior, which in a way is kind of ungodlike, you know, that God should be involved in such physical things as actually clothing people. But, um, but the whole tenor of the language is about human life, and God has to find his place. Um, what, came, what came to mind again when I thought about that 
was the beautiful expression that's used about God that he has he looks for a dwelling place in the lower worlds um, and that's why he commands the building of the tabernacle later on mm. that is in some sense God dwells in this world and it seemed to me that human the human language that God is obliged to use almost captive is, to is him. actually that that's the house he lives in that's mm. the dwelling place mm. of God that he's willing to accept a kind of lower dwelling place a place that doesn't really suit his his grandeur, um, because of what can happen. You know, once once this the lower worlds um, are acknowledged to have God mm. in them. And so you're not just thinking about the, our texts, but but the texts included. I mean, that's. The, the text included, oh, I see. the written yes, text, yes. The, the sacred text The sacred included. text, yes, that but not that only, uh-huh. yes, yes. I mean, that's an interesting way to think about how powerful this kind of text, this text is, mm-hmm. and yet uh, flawed. I mean, it, not, not enough, yeah. not enough. Not enough, needs reading, ne- uh-huh. needs reading and reading, <laughs> because, I mean, in a way that may be its perfection, but it's a perfection via that goes via apparent imperfections mm-hmm. and, and, and the energy that's created then of, of the reading process is much more important than having a perfect text, whatever that might be, which mm-hmm. I think is actually an impossibility. I don't know what a perfect text would be. Mm-hmm. But I also mean, uh, you might think uh, in the abstract that if human beings are encountering the word of God, that that would be enough to, mm. right, to, to live by mm-hmm. to, and to live, to get it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that, again, for outsiders mm. to our traditions would say, would point at the fact that there's supposedly the word of God and there's so much, but then humanity is humanity. Mm-hmm. But what you're describing, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, of mm-hmm. course it doesn't suffice. There's no to, fail-safe, um, there's no... Um, you know, password to the good life in a text. It's all alchemy. It's all how we how we incorporate the text, what we do with it. Mm. And again, that that word, that language is is life. It's not just mm-hmm. not just words, not just speech. Well, I think speech is involved very much in it. Um, but yes, I mean. The Torah, the Torah is life. is It's it's a plain statement, you know, that is made. The psalmist makes it in, in different ways, um, and it's life in its most immediate. You know, people people who are in, imbued with the text, with with the biblical text, it's always in their minds, in some sense or other. That is, that things are always floating up, words are always floating up, and. And completing things and opening things up, and so you sometimes see. And on, on, this is one of my memories of my father on Jerusalem bus, you know, sort of getting onto the bus and sitting next to some other bearded character, and the two of them just beginning to have this cryptic <laughs> conversation, <laughs> in which you know, it'd be one quote and another quote, and, you know, kind of barely opening their mouths, <laughs> you know, mm. just it, communicating sort of under underground. Mm. You know, no one else could have could have told what they were what they were talking about, but they're talking at depth. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the title of your most recent book, The Murmuring Deep, mm. so evocative. Is that, does that point at that, that depth you're talking about? Or just describe what you mean by that phrase. <sighs> I suppose by the murmuring deep, I mean the living and rather disturbing being of, of the universe, what was called the deep, the tohom, uh, at the beginning of, of, of Genesis, that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Uh, the idea that might not have been a silent deep, but mm. actually mm. That there might have been a murmur or a moan or something coming up from there, which in a way had to be interrupted in order for there to be speech. You know, that light had to come into the darkness and speech had to come and disturb that very disturbing sound, which is a kind of sound of basic life, which is always there, nevertheless, as far as I can understand it. Underneath all the words we say, what we, what we are really communicating with on some primal level, kind of elemental level, is, I suppose you could say, the unconscious or way, things that cannot be put into words, which are also part of communication. It's also part of, of, of what we convey to one another. Hmm. Right, you say the the biblical unconscious. It's the reflections on the biblical unconscious, and mm. what you're kind of describing is that biblical unconscious meeting the human unconscious mm. and the strange and essential things that happen in that. Yes, yes, that and that's that's really the joy of reading. I think that that we are not solving riddles when we read the Bible, but we are responding with with everything that's in us, and we we have we trust that. There is enough there to to meet that. Mm. What else? Anything you want to say as we finish? Anything you just that's come to you that you want to bring in? Any image or story or? <laughs> um, I don't know if anything comes immediately to mind, and or too much comes to mind. Maybe mm-hmm. that's another way of putting it. Um, I think what we're doing now um, is an example of what we're talking about, um, that there are all kinds of desires at work in this kind of conversation. Um, and and it, that, that adds a richness to what officially is going on. Um, sort of guesswork, you know, like, mm-hmm. what, what are you really saying? What am I really saying? Right. Uh, and so on, and as, as precise as we try to be. We, we we never quite say it, mm-hmm. um, and that's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it exciting. It's that dialectic between strangeness and fam- familiarity yes, yes, that you also yes, describe. Yes, yes, and without the strangeness, you know, uh, it would be a very dull affair. It, w- it wouldn't really give birth to much. Mm. Mm. All right, Aviva Zornberg, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Are you happy? Okay. Trent is... Actually, everybody on our team is, com- is completely besotted with you <laughs> and with that program we did before. And I was kind of nervous coming in here because I felt like I was... But I couldn't, ri- I couldn't rise to that occasion. <laughs> well, you certainly did. I really enjoyed this very much. Yes. Oh, that was really quite unnerving that time, in, alone in a, in a studio. And it was just that your, your voice was so 
it was so calming and so rich and it just made oh. me feel yeah there is a presence here i'm not really on my own oh in this room. i know it it was well it's interesting how that there's an intimacy to yeah. that isn't that it's a strange ISDN. thing i've said to people maybe this gets at some of the things we were talking about uh because everybody assumes that uh, people always assume that the interviews are in person. I'm sure people that because if, that they're in person because uh, I'm sure people would think that you and I were sitting across from each other. Mm-hmm. But I've said that since I started doing that. So what's happening there is that the words of the other person are coming straight into my head, mm-hmm. and I am working mm-hmm. exclusively with the human voice, yes. everything it can convey, yes. and words mm-hmm. alone, yes. which is also the experience the listener is going to have. Where and so now I'm very aware when I do an uh, an in person interview, there's a lot more you have to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. You don't realize mm-hmm. it. You're, you have to. I mean, I have to dress up. I have to sit up straight. There's eye. <laughs> there's eye contact. There's yes. body language. Yes, yeah. But uh, in fact, if you're doing this for radio, the listener is not going to have those advantages. That's right. So mm-hmm. I have to so rely on that less than I might yes. in a normal conversation. Yeah. But then there's something quite mysterious and powerful that happens when you just let it be about. That exchange. Mm-hmm. It almost it reminds me of psychoanalysis about uh-huh. that, that strange, you know, system, in which basically all you have is the voice yes. of the other person. And I often, um, when I'm doing those ISDN, I have my eyes closed. I mean, I can completely yes. listen. Yes. I'm not doing anything but listening. Yes. Yes. And that's we don't actually listen like that in in real life in our interactions. Yes, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. Yes. Oh, it's great. Great to be here. What is this neighborhood called that we're in? It's called Kataman, Old Kataman, um, which Kataman means beside the monastery, oh. under the monastery. And there's a monastery just in the park at the end of the road. What kind of monastery? Is uh, I think it's is it Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox? I've learned in Jerusalem that uh, just to say Christian doesn't mean anything. Right? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. And it was the site of one of the great battles in, in the 48 War. Oh, really? Uh, you know, where it was really a kind of tragic, tragic site. The monastery. People died there and, uh, and so on. But, uh, yeah, so the whole area is called Kataman. And it's a, it's a, it's a very mixed neighborhood, which I like. Mm. Um, all kinds of people living peacefully mm-hmm. together. Mm. I was just reading about, um, a Ked- is it Kedman School? Kedman? Um, oh. Where it's uh, uh, kind of different Jews from uh, Ethiopia finding a new home for students. Oh, yes. yes. There are a lot of, there are really wonderful experiments now being done in, in, yes. In in this neighborhood? Yeah, uh, Uh there's one right in uh, this neighborhood here that's uh, doing well. Yeah. um, Strangers, talk about stranger familiarity, that they come here and that they find a home in the differentness of all the others, other people that have come in, Mm -hmm. immigrated recently, uh, Mm. young kids. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, do you know Yossi Klein Halevi? Mm. Do you know him? I don't know him personally. But yeah, I, I, I interview. He's been on the show before, but I interviewed him, and uh, one of the things he talks about is how, in this place, in this land, um, the human condition is playing itself out with a particular intensity. Mm. <laughs> I think that's so it's like everything true. we're talking about yes. is in relief here. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's one thing to know that, mm-hmm. but to be here is just, you know, I have to now go away and process mm. all of this. It's quite exhausting <laughs> yeah. to, li- to live here. And at the same time, everywhere else seems a little bland. I, I can imagine uh, that. You know, kind of uh-huh. comfortable. And, and, <laughs> and why don't I live there <laughs> <laughs> rather than here? But... but <laughs> Much more, in a way, much more real here. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Room sound. Okay. Oh, it's nice. We should have a moment of silence every yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs>